0: Hello and welcome. This is Mark Wankworth. You're listening to Tales of the Sea. My guest today is Curtis Bolin. Curtis is uh, currently the director of the Casco Bay Estuary Partnership here in Portland, Maine. The partnership's mission is to help conserve the ecological integrity of Maine's Casco Bay as well as its watershed through uh, science. Uh, public stewardship and, of course, effective management. Curtis has a master's degree in biology and a doctorate in ecology. And as you'll soon hear, he is a passionate and highly experienced aquatic and wetland ecologist. He's dedicated, along with his uh, partners, both inside and outside the University of Southern Maine, to seek uh, creative solutions to environmental challenges. One of them, of course, being how climate change is affecting our waters. He specifically focused on improving the health of Maine's Casco Bay. And although we might consider the topic of today's Tales of the Sea discussion uh, somewhat sea-adjacent, if you will, the health of the lands that directly interact with any body of water, be it ocean or river or lake, is uh, critical to our environment. I mean, it might be a watershed or a wetland or a tidal marsh or estuary or bog. These sea-adjacent areas are vitally important, and that's why I was anxious to have Curtis join me on today's podcast. So, Curtis, welcome, and uh, let's just start. Um, I want to make sure I've got some of the terminology correct. Um, let's let's look at the word watershed and uh its importance to aquatic health.
1: There's a watershed is an area that drains to a particular identified location. Um and usually you're interested in it because there's something there you care about like a lake or a bay or something like that. But in fact, a watershed is a, a more general concept. It's the it's the area of land that drains to one location.
0: So a watershed collects uh rainwater, um uh, snowmelt, other Waters groundwater and then channels uh, that water to any number of points, uh, like ponds or creeks or streams or uh, rivers, lakes, uh, maybe the, even the, the ocean itself.
1: So it's a big, extensive area um, that is of interest to us because what goes on in that watershed is what's going to be affecting conditions in the water body that I care about most, which is Casco Bay. Okay. The core idea is a wetland, the wetland is where. Water and land intermingled.
0: Right, right. So you really can't underestimate the uh, importance of the wetlands because th- they connect to everything: rivers, lakes, and oceans. Uh, wetlands are the place where land and water meet, as you say.
1: And there's a lot of biology that happens there. There's a and there's a lot of hydrology that happen, happens there. I think about um, a couple of examples. One of which is a fabulous. Um, A floodplain forest up in Freiburg, Maine, that I have walked on in the summertime and gone and visited. And it's these beautiful silver maples and just this wonderful, wonderful forest to walk through. Lots and lots of wood frogs in it, uh, just full of life and full of uh, interesting things to look at. But in the summer, it's dry. I've also canoed over that same floodplain forest during a flood event. And to me, that's sort of the essence of what a wetland is, is it's where sometimes it's water, sometimes it's not. And we need to think about them as being integrated. That floodplain, when I'm there in the summer, feels like land, but it's actually part of the river ecosystem and what makes the river function the way a forest and river does. It's those interconnections that are critical. And so when I think about what a wetland is important for, it's the interconnections between land and water. When we move towards the coast and thinking about oceans, um, tidal wetlands are often really important as a buffer between waves and and flooding and the
0: adjacent human communities. Curtis, I know this is a real passion for you. Uh, Where did your interest first develop? I grew up actually in Washington, D.C.,
1: but I was a kid with the fish tank. I was a kid (laughs) with the snake living in a colander in the kitchen. It was pretty clear by the time I was 10 that I was going to do something related to water, and that was going to be my career path. Mm. But I spent summers um, in Maine, um, sailing uh, with with friends and family, and exploring tide pools, and getting muddy, and catching um, mackerel off the back of the, the dock, and you know all those other things, and that gives you a, a great sense of the place. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I remember snorkeling in with no wetsuit in the waters of Maine as a as a ten year old, and being fascinated by all the things I saw underwater. <laughs> Um, you know, and it's, it's been with me my whole life. And I think, um, I was surrounded by people who cared about the ocean in a variety of ways, some recreational, um, and I had great science teachers over the years who were excited about anything cool out there. Um, and I spent a lot of time just, um, getting muddy as a kid. And there's few things better for connecting with the ocean than going out and being told to dig clams and realizing there's a lot of other stuff living out there in that clam (laughs) flat, not just clams. Right. What, what's that funny worm thing? <laughs> and those are, those are all really important memories early on. I was passionate about ocean and ocean science to the point of getting newsletters
0: from marine labs in Florida when I was a, you know, a 10, 11, 12-year-old kid. <laughs> I can imagine you sharing it with your buddies at 10 or 11 years old. It's like, hey, look at this newsletter I just got. I'm sure they were bored out of their gourds, and I'm sure my parents were thoroughly confused. You know, it's great that your parents got you up to Maine every summer. What overall was their influence on you growing up? Both of my parents actually
1: um, were part of the early growth of the sort of the uh, environmental movement, environmental politics of the 1970s. Um, Both of my parents, at various times, worked for World Wildlife Fund. Um, My my dad worked for the Interior Department. He also worked for um, for the State Department. So. Environment and thinking about environmental issues was very much part of how we grew up. Um, We spent a lot of time under my mom's um, great encouragement, spending time outdoors, hiking as a family, uh, cross country skiing as a family, um, sailing as a family, uh, sailing, you know, as competing with each other, trying to see who could make that boat go faster. Um, But uh, I think it was that combination of connection outdoors all the time. And uh, watching the early growth of the environmental community in the U.S. as they were wrestling with what does it mean to think about how we protect uh, ecosystems and environmental benefits around the world. Right. And so I think being around that was very, very important. And then I took it my own way because I was the kid
0: with the snake on the kitchen counter. (laughs) I I like that image. That's going to stay with me for a while. So, Curtis, when you hear the phrase disappearing wetlands, you think, wow, how's that going to affect our lake or ocean or river, for that matter? It's a big deal. So there are lots of lots of different
1: reasons where wetlands disappear um, and they're different in different different parts of the world. But in Maine, um, we actually still have a fairly high percentage of the wetlands that were here pre-European settlement, something on the order of 50 percent of them or so are probably still around. Um, for compared to other states, that's a lot. What starts to happen is you need to you need to think about wetlands first and foremost as among the most important areas. Wetlands are great sediment traps. They're great places to remove nitrogen, which is a
0: fertilizer and, and, and functions as a water pollutant as well. Right. So it's clear that the wetlands have significant water quality benefits cleaning the water first among them. The second thing is that's where if we're going to have flood flooding problems. The wetlands are the
1: areas that flood without damaging our homes. You want to give the river somewhere to flow that will flood during a large storm events that isn't going to damage um, people's infrastructure and homes and roads and things like that. And wetlands provide that overflow valve for those rivers. So uh, very important from a flood control re- um, perspective regionally.
0: And of course, many different critters make their home in the wetlands, um fish, small animals, uh, ducks, of course, and uh, all of them vulnerable, I would think, to the loss of a healthy wetland environment. There's a lot of
1: different things that happen in those wetland ecosystems. So the cumulative losses add up and they start to affect other things we care about.
0: Now, what other activities are you and the team involved with?
1: We do a lot of habitat restoration work. We do a lot of work on water quality, Um, especially around stormwater-related work, coastal nutrients, coastal acidification. A lot of that work these days is thinking about how do we help our communities wrestle with the changes that are coming under climate change? How do we help them plan for the future in an effective way?
0: So I'm curious, were there particular individuals who were influential in your education and growth?
1: Several, actually. Pretty much every educational step along the way. Uh, I can think of uh, my PhD advisor, a woman named Barbara Bedford at Cornell, who introduced me to wetland ecology and really got me thinking about how wetland systems function.
0: And of course, the uh, folks you work with now, you mentioned uh, you've got a great team. Maine in particular is a small state. We get to know each other. We work
1: together. There are many, many, many great colleagues who I work with. And they have been important on keeping me excited about my work, because ultimately what makes the work fun and interesting are the people you work with.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. You mentioned that one of the key focuses of the partnership is um, habitat restoration. Uh, Can you define for us that term? um, And in light of climate change, has the work evolved in terms of how you and your colleagues uh, go about implementing programs and other initiatives? Let me start with sort of giving a
1: sense of what the traditional view of restoration was and the way I was originally trained to do ecological restoration. The idea behind restoration has always been that you identify a site where there's been some sort of harm to a natural ecosystem, almost always caused by humans, but not necessarily. Because occasionally it's a storm event or something like that. Um, and then you're going to go and you're going to act like a doctor and you're going to heal it. Um, and the way I was trained to do that work was to go find a nearby ecosystem that you considered to be healthy and use that as a model and say, we're going to make it look like that. Um, And the very word restoration says we're putting it back the way it used to be. And um, both of those phenomena of focusing about looking back and also the phenomena of identifying something nearby and saying it ought to look like that begin to feel less and less uh, defensible um, when the world is changing. Uh, We're no longer thinking about doing this work of coastal restoration, salt marsh restoration, or restoration of fish passage, which are two of the areas we spend a lot of time on, um, with an eye towards what used to be there. I don't want to make the salt marshes that we work on today work the way they worked 10 years ago. I want to work on them so they work 50 years from now. So instead, I have to say, well, what do we want this wetland to accomplish for our community? Um, And that immediately brings us into human values. And then as you recognize that almost all of our restoration projects are making up for some sort of human disturbance, not all, but some, um, you recognize that that usually means we're altering human infrastructure, roads, putting in a bigger culvert, um, you know, removing a road, um,
0: replanting an area that had the trees removed. I mean, there's all sorts of different specific actions just, just a side note here our wide-ranging discussion took in another key component of the aquatic environment and that's the tidal marsh tidal marshes can be composed of freshwater salt water or a uh, combination uh, commonly referred to as brackish water the tidal action of the marsh provides invaluable protection for many fish species uh, birds and uh, other wildlife as well as helps to clean polluted water and protect against storms and floods. I was interested to hear from Curtis what the focus of the work is today. I think for
1: us in Maine, the core of this is really beginning to look forward um, to understand how do we find projects that are good for our tidal marshes, but are also good to help our towns be ready for slightly higher seas or for larger waves or bigger storms or the other things that we think are coming under climate change? Um, How do we help address both of those simultaneously? And I think of those as being the dual value projects, which are the ideal things we want to find.
0: Curtis, we've talked a bit about the issue of water quality, which I would think is or should be topmost in people's minds, especially in communities like our own here on the coast of Maine.
1: In Maine, that's not always such a hard sell. Uh, Many of our communities are deeply deeply rooted in their relationship to water. On the coast, it might be lobster, but inland it's lake communities that depend on summer tourism and people coming to recreate on their lakes. And if lake water quality falls apart, their town economy is threatened. You know, those kinds of connections are very, very tight in Maine and very strong. Brewers will tell you that clean water really helps make good beer. Um, You know, there's an overlap. can we build that into something? That's the process of finding those relationships. And often businesses are very interested in that because we can lower their costs. We can find a more efficient way of protecting water quality. And if we can find a way to do that more efficiently and more effectively, business uh, business people are very interested in having that conversation.
0: So it, it's pretty clear that education plays a big role in the kinds of conversations that you have and just... Uh, getting folks up to speed, if you will, on, on what it is you're really offering in terms of a partnership? One of the challenges we have
1: is broadening who we talk to. Um, there are groups like nonprofits that have an interest in water quality who are obvious and easy partners. There are businesses who have obligations to help protect clean water who are obvious partners. But there are many, many communities and subcommunities around us We don't yet know how to engage them effectively. It's a big, big challenge. Then I'll switch over to thinking about education in sort of the traditional sense. There's education for sort of students, um, you know, and that's obviously something that is of value. You get people to understand the concept of watershed. You started asking me, what's a watershed? If we can teach that to fifth graders. Um, That makes certain conversations later on make more sense. And it's easier for us to have those conversations and talk about how what they do in their
0: house in Norway affects Casco Bay. Well, that would be Norway, Maine, not uh, Scandinavia, just to be clear. Curtis, the caring for watersheds, wetlands, tidal marshes and other aquatic features is, of course, ongoing. Uh, What's the focus now as we approach the end of 2023 and, and in the near future? the more challenging work for us right now is how do we broaden
1: the circle of who we speak to and how do we broaden the people who understand what we do have to offer and can come to us if they have an idea for where there might be an overlap in interest. Um, we need to get that word out that we're open and we want to, we want to find new,
0: new, new partners and new solutions. Curtis and I began a discussion of the Long Creek Watershed Management District's restoration plan. By way of background, Long Creek is a freshwater stream in southern Maine, a tributary of the much larger Four River. Long Creek is subject to runoff not only from Maine highways, but from surrounding primarily urban landscape with concrete and asphalt having replaced much of the former natural woodlands. The restoration project was established by four watershed municipalities in Maine, South Portland. Portland, Westbrook, and Scarborough. It includes representatives of local businesses, nonprofit organizations, and state agencies. Its aim is to improve the quality of the creek's water to meet state standards. And since the mid 20th century, urban development has increased the amount of pollutants flowing into the creek, lowering the quality of the water and eroding its channels and increasing the creek's temperature. The Long Creek Watershed is an area of approximately four square miles encompassing a large retail shopping mall complex in addition to the city of Portland's shipping port and International Jetport. It's interesting to note that all of the land drains to one point, so it is, in fact, one large watershed. I asked Curtis what some of the biggest challenges were when putting together a project on this scale the stream there, Long Creek, violates water quality
1: standards on a fairly regular basis. And a little over a decade ago, there was a a push to um, recognize that the challenge there was not pollutant coming out of one pipe. The challenge there was the urbanization itself. And how could we find a way to manage water quality in a suburban landscape? And there was a regulatory um, innovation, Uh, that required any landowner in that watershed who owns more than one acre of what's called impervious surfaces, so rooftops and roads, basically, rooftop parking lots and roads, roughly speaking,
0: um, to get a Clean Water Act permit. A quick side note here. Regular listeners of this podcast may recall how many times the Clean Water Act of 1972 is referenced in our Tales of the Sea stories, and the fact that in 1972 Maine's Senator Edmund Muskie helped lead the charge to establish the basic structure of the act. Curtis points out that by law each landowner in the watershed district would be individually responsible to act in accordance with the Clean Water Act. But Curtis and the Long Creek management team, with a wide variety of partners, found a more innovative solution.
1: We put together a proposal that said we can do this as a nonprofit corporation that will do the work on behalf of what is now about
0: 130 landowners. Wow. And I imagine these landowners have developed their individual properties, everything from restaurants and retail stores to uh, gas stations. Um, you know, huge range of different kinds of businesses.
1: And our job is to manage clean water for them. When the current project is completed, There's one going on right now. When that one's completed, we'll get to just about 150 acres of impervious surface that we've built treatment facilities for. It's a huge long-term effort to try to get that stream healthier and healthier. And the strength of this is we're able to do things like have one big contract for catch basin cleanup, which is much, much cheaper than what would happen if each of those businesses had to do it individually. So there's some
0: real economies of scale involved. So if we look at Maine in particular, the health of the wetland ecology, the health of the wetlands, would you say that the state's in pretty good shape overall, or is there room for improvement? So,
1: I mean, it's interesting. If you go back and look at water quality data in Maine from mid-20th century, when the first data really started to kick out in in the 60s, sometimes in the late 50s, water quality was a lot worse in many waters in the state of Maine. Um, So the first thing I would say is the passage of the Clean Water Act in the early 70s has had a dramatic effect improving water quality in Maine. Overall, the other thing that protects water quality in Maine is that most of the state is forested. Um, Forests are good for water quality. And that means that even in, for example, the Presumskit Watershed, which discharges in in the waters on the edge of Portland and Falmouth, most of that watershed is forested and water quality coming out of the Prasumsket River is so good, it goes into Sebago Lake and that's the drinking water supply for Portland and the region. Portland Water District doesn't have to filter that water because it's so clean, because most of the watershed is forested. Um, Should we lose a lot of that forest, we will see changes in water quality.
0: Oh, that's not a pleasant thought.
1: The other thing that helps a lot for Casco Bay and for some other waters around Maine is we've got pretty big tides. And that moves the water around a lot. And that tends to mean that even parts of Portland Harbor, which have got huge amounts of human activity going on adjacent to them, have pretty good water quality because the water is sloshing in and out from the Gulf of Maine. But those are the two things that I would point to sort of saying what makes this a little easier for water quality in Maine um, and is, is
0: really our forests and our tides. So as you look ahead, five, uh, 10, even 20 years down the road, what would you like to see happen on a local level to help ensure a healthy future for our aquatic community? There are many, many coastal assets
1: along the coast of Maine that are vulnerable to sea level rise and big storms and coastal erosion. Um, We need to start having conversations with people about what's the future going to look like? Is that marina going to be here in 100 years? Um, How do we support them in the process of sea level rise happening? You know, what happens as we get new fisheries resources moving into the region as fisheries fisheries species that are dominant in the mid-Atlantic start to be more common in Maine? We're beginning to see blue crab in Casco Bay and in southern Maine. Is that a future fishery? Do we want it to be a future fishery? What does that do to the uh, the culture of lobstering in the state of Maine if we have another crustacean fishery?
0: Right. Right. As you say, those are extremely important conversations, tough conversations, but important ones to have. So my last question, and thank you, Curtis. This has been great on many levels. The, the podcast is called Tales of the Sea, and I wondered if you might have a favorite story. I do. Um, when I was... Six
1: years old, I weighed 64 pounds. Oh no, I was 62 pounds. Yeah. I went out fishing with my family and another family out of Jonesport on a you know, commercial boat that took people out to go fishing for cod. Right, right. And I went out, uh, that day we caught, as two families, we caught about 350 cod. Whoa. And halfway through the day, I hooked into something. Uh, no idea what it was. And um, it turned out, first thing is, as it was obviously much bigger than me, my mom tells, told me uh, that she grabbed the seat of my pants because she was afraid I was gonna get pulled over the side of the boat. Uh-huh. And I tried to pull this, boat, this fish up from 300 feet of water and got nowhere. We handed it over to my dad and my dad hauled on the thing for half an hour. <laughs> and eventually we pulled up a 64 pound halibut. Oh, wow. So the halibut outweighed me by two pounds. <laughs> It was one of the largest halibut caught that year out of Jonesport. We got in the local newspaper with a picture of this (laughs) six-year-old blonde kid and my dad and this giant fish. And my family was eating halibut. Uh, Every extended family was eating halibut for the next week. Yeah, i bet. Um, But that story of being out on that boat and catching that fish, that to me is what we want the future of the ocean in Maine to be. It's not Mm. necessarily that story. But stories like that, where families have a meaningful experience that they tell each other over the Thanksgiving table for the rest of their lives.
0: Right, right. Perfect. And
1: that's for me and my family, that is one of them, is catching a fish that outweighed the kid who hooked it. You know, to me, that (laughs) when I think about tales of the sea, that's a tale. And it's one that for our family is a marker in time. And for me, when I think about what I want, for the ocean and for the coast of Maine and for my kids. And I think that's a a core part of what makes it so meaningful for us is that we're confronted with that difference and experience how amazing
0: the ocean can be. Mm. Yeah. That's a vision worth working for, for all of us, uh, for now, for many generations to come. Curtis, thank you so much for your time today. This has been great. As I say, very educational on, lots of levels i really enjoyed our time together thank you again
1: well thank you so much for asking me to be part of it i am um i am deeply deeply committed to this idea of thinking about relationships between people and water and people and ocean in a positive and energetic way and recognizing the humanity of the work we do I was trained as an ecologist, and it's really easy to get sidetracked and to think that this is all about science. But it's not. It's about people. And, and that, to me, is what makes the work really, what makes it interesting after doing it for 35 years.
0: Well said. Well said. Uh, thank you again for joining us. That ends this episode of Tales of the Sea. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or two. And be sure to find us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you stream your favorite stories. I'm Mark Wakeworth. Thanks for listening.